when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches laugh large in the Stately clump back bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by John Mitchinson. The youngster will be all right, Martin Cunningham said as they passed out of the castle yard gate. The policeman touched his forehead. God bless you, Martin Cunningham said cheerily. He signed to the waiting Jarvey, who chucked at the reins and set on towards Lord Edward Street. Bronze by gold, Miss Kennedy's head by Miss Deuce's head appeared above the cross blind of the Ormond Hotel. Yes, Martin Cunningham said, fingering his beard. I wrote to Father Conmey and laid the whole case before him. You could try our friend, Mr. Power suggested backward. Boyd, Martin Cunningham said shortly. Touch me not. John Wise Nolan, lagging behind, reading the list, came after them quickly down Cork Hill. On the steps of the City Hall, Councillor Nanetti, descending, held Alderman Cowley and Councillor Abraham Lyon, ascending. The castle car wheeled empty into Upper Exchange Street. Look here, Martin, John Wise Nolan said, overtaking them at the mail office. I see Bloom put his name down for five shillings. Quite right, Martin Cunningham said, taking the list, and put down the five shillings too. Without a second word either, Mr Power said. Strange but true, Martin Cunningham added. John Wise Nolan opened wide eyes. I'll say there is much kindness in the Jew, he quoted elegantly. They went down Parliament Street. There's Jimmy Henry, Mr Power said, just heading for Kavanagh's. Righto, Martin Cunningham said, here goes. Outside La Maison Claire, Blazes Boylan waylaid Jack Mooney's brother-in-law, humpy, tight, making for the liberties. John Wise Nolan fell back with Mr Power, while Martin Cunningham took the elbow of a dapper little man in a shower of hail suit, who walked uncertainly with hasty steps past Mickey Anderson's watches. The assistant town clerk's corns are giving him some trouble, John Wise Nolan told Mr Power. They followed round the corner towards James Kavanagh's wine rooms. The empty castle car fronted them at rest in Essex Gate. Martin Cunningham, speaking always, showed often the list at which Jimmy Henry did not glance. And Lon John Fanning is here too, John Wise Nolan said, as large as life. The tall form of Long John Fanning filled the doorway where he stood. Good day, Mr. Subsheriff, Martin Cunningham said, as all halted and greeted. Long John Fanning made no way for them. He removed his large Henry Clay decisively, and his large, fierce eyes scowled intelligently over all their faces. Are the conscript fathers pursuing their peaceful deliberations? he said, with rich, acrid utterance to the assistant town clerk. Hell open to Christians they were having, Jimmy Henry said pettishly, about their damned Irish language. Where was the marshal, he wanted to know, to keep order in the council chamber, and old Barlow, the mace-bearer, laid up with asthma, no mace on the table, nothing in order, no quorum even, and Hutchinson, the Lord Mayor, inland Dudno, and little Lork and Sherlock, doing locum tenems for him, damned Irish language of our forefathers. Long John Fanning 
blew a plume of smoke from his lips. Martin Cunningham spoke by turns, twirling the peak of his beard to the assistant town clerk and the sub-sheriff, while John Wise Nolan held his peace. What dignum was that? Long John Fanning asked. Jimmy Henry made a grimace and lifted his left foot. Oh, my corns, he said plaintively. Come upstairs, for goodness sake, so I sit down somewhere. Oh, 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 mind! Testily, he made room for himself beside Long John Fanning's flank and passed in and up the stairs. Come on up, Martin Cunningham said to the sub-sheriff. I don't think you knew him, or perhaps you did, though. With John Wise Nolan, Mr. Power followed them in. Decent little soul he was, Mr. Power said to the stalwart back of Long John Fanning, ascending towards Long John Fanning in the mirror. Rather low-sized dignum of Menton's office that was, Martin Cunningham said. Long John Fanning could not remember him. Clatter of horse hoofs sounded from the air. What's that? Martin Cunningham said. All turned where they stood. John Wise Nolan came down again. From the cool shadow of the doorway, he saw the horses pass Parliament Street, harness and glossy pastons in sunlight shimmering. Gaily they went past, before his cool, unfriendly eyes, not quickly. In saddles of the leaders, leaping leaders, rode outriders. What was it? Martin Cunningham asked, as they went on up the staircase. The Lord Lieutenant-General and General Governor of Ireland, John Wise Nolan answered from the stairfoot. As they trod across the thick carpet, Buck Mulligan whispered behind his Panama to Haynes, Parnell's brother, there in the corner. They chose a small table near the window, opposite a long-faced man whose beard and gaze hung intently down on a chessboard. Is that he? Haynes asked, twisting round in his seat. Yes, Mulligan said. That's John Howard, his brother, our city marshal. John Howard Parnell translated a white bishop quietly, and his grey claw went up again to his forehead, whereat it rested. An instant after, under its screen, his eyes looked quickly, ghost-bright at his foe, and fell once more upon a working corner. I'll take a melange, Haynes said to the waitress. Two melanges, Buck Mulligan said, and bring us some scones and butter and some cakes as well. When she had gone, he said, laughing, We call it DBC, because they have damn bad cakes. Oh, but you miss Daedalus on Hamlet. Haynes opened his new-bought book. I'm sorry, he said. Shakespeare is the happy hunting ground of all minds that have lost their balance. The one-legged sailor growled at the area of 14 Nelson Street. England expects... Buck Mulligan's primrose waistcoat showed gaily to his laughter. You should see him, he said, when his body loses its balance. Wandering Angus, I call him. I'm sure he has an e-day feast, Haynes said, pinching his chin thoughtfully with thumb and forefinger. Now I am speculating what it would likely be. Such persons always have. Buck Mulligan bent across the table gravely. They drove his wits astray, he said, by visions of hell. He will never capture the attic note, the note of Swinburne, of all poets, the white death and the ruddy birth. That is his tragedy. He can never be a poet. The joy of creation, eternal punishment, Haynes said, nodding curtly. I see. I tackled him this morning on belief. That was something on his mind, I saw. It's rather interesting, because Professor Bacorni of Vienna makes an interesting point out of that. Buck Mulligan's watchful eyes saw the waitress come. 
he helped her to unload her tray. He can find no trace of hell in ancient Irish myth, Haines said, amid cheerful cups. The moral idea seems lacking, the sense of density, of retribution. Rather strange he should have just that fixed idea. Does he write anything for your movement? He sank two lumps of sugar, deftly longwise through the whipped cream. But Mulligan slit a steaming scone in two and plastered butter over its smoking pith. He bit off a soft piece hungrily. Ten years, he said, chewing and laughing. He's going to write something in ten years. Seems a long way off, Haines said, thoughtfully, lifting his spoon. Still, I shouldn't wonder if he did after all. He tasted a spoonful from the creamy cone of his cup. This is real Irish cream, I take it, he said with forbearance. I don't want to be imposed on. Elijah, skiff, light crumpled throwaway, sailed eastward by flanks of ships and trawlers, amid an archipelago of corks, beyond New Wapping Street, past Benson's Ferry, and by the three-masted schooner Roseveen, from Bridgewater with bricks. Almidano Artifoni walked past Holly Street, past Sewell's Yard, behind him Cashel, Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmorris, Tisdall, Farrell, with stick-umbrella dustcoat dangling, shunned the lamp before Mr. Law Smith's house, and, crossing, walked along Merrion Square. Distantly, behind him, a blind stripling tapped his way by the wall of College Park. Cashel, Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmorris, Tisdall, Farrell walked as far as Mr. Lewis Werner's cheerful windows, then turned and strode back along Merrion Square, his stick-umbrella dustcoat dangling. At the corner of Wiles, he halted, frowned at Elijah's name and announced on the Metropolitan Hall, frowned at the distant pleasance of Duke's lawn, his eyeglass flashed frowning in the sun. With rat's teeth bared, he muttered, Coactus volui. He strode on for Clare Street, grinding his fierce word. As he strode past Mr. Bloom's dental windows, the sway of his dust coat brushed rudely from its angle, a slender tapping cane, and swept onwards, having buffeted a thewless body. The blind stripling turned his sickly face after the striding form. God's curse on you, he said sourly. Whoever you are, you're blinder nor I am, you bitches bastard. <laughs>